Hello and welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this latest episode we are going to be appreciating the wonderful dandelion, hearing one writer's experience of wildflower hunting in lockdown and getting out and about with Leif Sweden. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We share pictures of the wildflowers that we found in bloom in Britain and Ireland during the past week using the hashtag Wildflower Hour. It's the high point of the week on social media for many people, and you don't need to know anything about wildflowers to join in. All you need to do is to look for some. First up, is there a cheerier plant than the dandelion? Many gardeners would disagree vehemently, saying this member of the daisy family is the bane of their lives in their lawns and flower beds. But botanist Josh Stiles disagrees. He thinks dandelions are among our best wildflowers and has some surprising facts about how many different species of these bright yellow flowers there are. I asked him why he cares about a plant so many dismiss as a weed. Well, first and foremost, um, a weed is just a plant in the wrong place. And in terms of ecosystem functionality, um, dandelions are really, really important um, for a lot of different habitats. There's over a hundred species of insect that use them as a food plant. And in the spring, they're really, really important for loads of different pollinating invertebrates. Um, as well as their, their overall importance across a number of different habitats, we also have over 250 different species here in Britain, uh, which I think is, is pretty amazing. So tell me about some of those species. <laughs> Um, well, a lot of people might be familiar with the sort of big thugs that you get on road verges. And, and most of those plants are going to be dandelions that belong to a group um, called Ruderalia. But as well as those big thugs that you get in your garden and you get on road verges, we have some pretty special ones um, from Diddy Dandelions, miniature dandelions in a group called erythrosperma to spotted dandelions and we, we have so many different forms and species in britain and um, I, I just think that they're, they're pretty incredible what are some of your favorite species i recall seeing you finding one called bertha's dandelion which i thought was quite a fun name oh my god yeah so so bertha's dandelion is um, an endemic species to memory um, but as well here in Britain um, it's, it's nationally scarce there's less than 100 places in the country where you can see it and I found it in my local park so that was pretty good. What does it look um, like? It was oh gosh um, it was it was a pretty small dandelion with uh, a pressed brax to the flower and the leaves were a little bit spotty. What, one of my favourite dandelions is probably um, a species called the ruddy dandelion and it's our smallest species that we get here in Britain. It's about the size, it can be about the size of about a two pound coin. It's pretty small. Um, and it is so diddy and it's adapted to sand dunes and limestone grasslands and some really special habitats. So that is probably my, my favourite species. And what should people look at when they're trying to identify dandelions? I must confess that 
I caught some of your enthusiasm for dandelions during lockdown of last year. <laughs> picked a dandelion flower and a dandelion leaf and came home determined to identify my dandelion. And I didn't get very far. So tell me what I should have been looking for. And wow. what are some of the easier species to identify as well? Well, there are loads. Of, although they might look the same at first glance, there are loads of different um, identification features that dandelions have. About 10% of our dandelions don't actually produce pollen. Um, some species have bracts or um, little green scaly bits below the flower head that might hang downwards or they might be oppressed to the flowers. Some dandelion leaves have weird shapes to their leaves. Um, they might have lobes that look like little hooks or they might be upright, um, the, the little lobes. Um, they might have midribs in the leaves that are all one colour. They might be white or purple, or they might be stripy. So there are loads of different features um, when it comes to dandelions that can, that can help you identify them. And you run a course, don't you, for people who want to find out more about dandelion identification? I do. Um, so I ran a course last year called An Introduction to Dandelions. Um, I, I actually recorded that and that's up on YouTube now if anyone wants to go and see that. Thanks, Josh. You'll have seen that we recently had a focus on dandelions with a dandelion fest in Wildflower Hour. Do look back through the hashtag dandelion fest to see all the wonderful plants and some attempts at identifying those micro species too. And every Sunday, we set out a different challenge of plant families, flower colours or habitats for you to focus on. Do look at the Wildflower Hour accounts on social media to find out what's coming next. Now, one of the many wonderful things about dandelions is that they are everywhere. And a lot of us grew to appreciate their beauty all the more during the past year of lockdowns, when we couldn't travel further afield to see rarer but no more beautiful wildflowers. Writer John Dunn is used to travelling the world to see all kinds of wildlife. But, like the rest of us, he has spent much of the past 12 months confined to his croft on Shetland. He told me how much he'd noticed for the first time as he started botanising close to home. It's been a mixed blessing, if I'm honest. As you say, it's, it's wonderful to have work that takes me all across the Mediterranean looking for orchids and, and, and sharing them with people. And that's, that's terrific. And then last year, it didn't happen. And it looks like that may not happen this year, too. And at first, you, you feel really hard done by, as we all did when when lockdown bit and started to change our our, our lives, and particularly the uh, the our ability to do the things we're really passionate about. And then I I like some you know, many of us, I started to look closer to home and, and realized actually I hadn't looked much closely, uh, you know, hadn't looked close close to home in in the sort of detail which it really deserved. And I, I decided to start just on Mycroft. I live in the Shetland Islands and, and have seven acres of, of, of land around me, which I've tried to manage for the past 20 odd years for wildlife. And mainly there's a really obvious stuff, the, the breeding birds, which, which are here, but also the, the, the plant life as well. But I hadn't really had a chance to look hard at what I'd got on my doorstep apart from the really obvious thing, I knew I had thousands of heath-spotted orchids and, and northern marsh orchids in the lawn, which, you know, that's cool. 
but I, I, I started to, to, to try to be a little less um, two-dimensional, not just all about the orchids, but looking at the other things. And I, you know, it sounds really ridiculous, but I was, I was learning my buttercups and, and starting to do the, the really baby steps, which so many people have done years ago. Well, I, I hadn't. And you start finding you know, all sorts of exciting stuff like water ravens growing in, in a, a corner of the croft. And I was like, good God, I, how did I miss that? And I kept getting messages from, from pals that were saying, you know, John, this is a bit embarrassing, but you know, you, you, you've had all this stuff under your nose for, for years and never seen it. But it's, it's kind of got me looking at everything now. I mean, this, this winter, obviously, without the flowers out, I've started looking at, at lichen. And... You know, that's does that count for wildflower hour? Can we talk about lichen? Is that is that allowed? I think, I think at this time of the year, anything counts. <laughs> right, brilliant. In which case, you know, it's it's something which it's it's incre- it's, it's incredibly exciting to start learning stuff just for fun and for the for, for the sake of it, which I haven't done for years. When I'm writing books, I'm researching, and that's for a purpose. But but just to learn for the sake of learning, it's it's wonderful fun. And 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 the lichens, my God, it it turns out that you know, there's there's dozens of species under my very nose, some of which have never been recorded on the island before. And I'm, that's not claiming any great skill on my part. I've had a, a wealth of assistance from people online. There's a, just like Wildflower Hour, there's a thriving lichen community out there. And anyone can make discoveries on their doorstep. And you know, the same goes for, for, the, for the flowers as well as the lichen. Um, I've found you've seen water ravens. What are the other plants that you've seen that you've suddenly sort of been amazed by, or that you've looked at for the first time and thought this plant's wonderful? <laughs> uh, marsh violet. Um, I, I, I I set out to to try and I'd, I'd seen them years ago out on the hill behind the house, and I thought no, that'd be a nice thing to go and photograph. You know, a quarter of a mile walk away from home, daily exercise. That would be splendid. And I went out and I scoured the hill and I found a couple of really depauperate violets and thought, oh, okay, you know, maybe I'm too late. Um, and I was walking back home and climbed over the fence into the croft and was walking back to the house. And my eye, I suppose your search image, your, your radar is switched on and I noticed a marsh violet at my feet and then realized there were dozens and then hundreds of them growing 200 meters from the house. And, you know, they're tiny. They're so, so small. And, and yet when you down on your on your on your belly nose to yeah. nose to nose with them that's fantastic absolutely wonderful and that's a delicate tracery of of, of markings on them oh you know they i shouldn't say this but they blow orchids out of the water <laughs> some well, that orchids is sacrilegious coming from you for those listening who haven't yet read john's wonderful book orchid summer you absolutely must i wonder whether the lockdown adventures you've been having close to home are going to change the adventures you'll have in the wider world from now on. I mean, your, your book is so wonderful, the, the way you're desperately chasing every species and subspecies of orchids that grows in the British Isles. And you end up in, in various scrapes getting, st- I think you get stuck on the side of a, a stream or a creek somewhere up in the highlands and, and all sorts of things. Do you think you'll change what you look for and the way you look at things when you can go adventuring again? I, I think it will. It's 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 made me a lot more mindful. I mean, I guess it's made me uh, realise that I've taken certain liberties for you know for granted that we we've all had, and yeah, it's made it's it's been a more mindful experience looking at plants now. And I guess 
it's forced me to slow down. Um, no, I mean, of course, when when I'm leading tours overseas, we're, we're not galloping around like I did during the, the Orchid Summer research. We are taking our time, but it's certainly I, it's 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 slowed me down and, and, for, and not forced me, but it's it's encouraged me to, to look more closely at things and to understand, I suppose, the interactions of, 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 of various things with one another and 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 how they fit into to sort of a complex tapestry in a, in an environment so i'm not just going to be looking at orchids now i'm and I'm, I'm loving the fact that i'm knowing about other families of plants which i didn't know about before apart from in very broad generic terms so it's it's certainly been a process that's that's i guess rounding me up, uh, or polishing me a bit as a naturalist <laughs> And obviously, hopefully in the next few months, we will be coming out of a lot of the COVID restrictions and people will be looking around the British Isles and thinking, well, where can I go that's reasonably close to home, that's exciting, maybe leafing through your orchid summer book and thinking, which orchids can I go and look for? What would you recommend to people that they that they can see within these aisles? I mean, obviously, there are the, the sort of the poster boy orchids, the the, the ones which are you know, special and rare and so on. So in the south of England, the likes of military orchid or monkey orchid, these are things which are founded in very few sites, albeit ones which do have public access. Um, and, and those are those are sort of exciting. But what people should try and do is 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 find the orchids really near to home, the ones that don't have to necessarily make a special trip to Suffolk or into into the into the Chilterns to see, because Orchids are everywhere and you can, I mean, goodness me, there, there, there are now green winged orchids growing on green roofs in the centre of London. So they can turn up any, anywhere. And a really good resource is, is to start with your local wildlife trusts. Um, they have reserves scattered throughout the country and almost certainly there'll be something like common spotted orchids, um, maybe some butterfly orchids, things like that. And you'd be surprised how close these things grow to you, to your to your home wherever you are. And I know you had great adventures in Glasgow looking for broadleaved helleborins. And you know, this, just because you happen to live in a town or a city, that doesn't mean that there won't be orchids to find. And I guess this comes back to the last year of of, of lockdown botanizing. You, you you don't necessarily know what is right on your doorstep and the thrill of finding something for yourself never mind going to a reserve where you happen to know something is but stumbling across something out of the ordinary you know the, the commonplace can be rare it, I, I, in a certain context so it's it's incredibly exciting to and yeah, if you if you as you say a staycation if you're staying in in the uk um who knows what you're going to find? Anybody can rewrite the, the, not the record books, but the distribution maps. And that's really good fun. Now, what's the orchid that you look back on from your orchid summer with the most fondness or the most feeling of excitement? Because you, your book is, the enthusiasm is contagious and it's it's very easy to get swept along and think, right, I want to do this too. But that <laughs> great memories. And there must be one plant that, that you think, wow, seeing that was really was a moment. Oh my goodness! Um, there are that is a really difficult question. So, there were so many moments, but uh, I, I suppose that the first flowering orchid I saw of the year, the storefly orchid down in Dorset. I mean, it was a contentious plant because it may well have been planted there. It probably was by persons unknown, but that was kind of, I, I guess, the biggest adrenaline rush in the sense that you 
knew that, that there was a possibility that you you might not have seen or one might not have seen that and kind of the whole year would have fallen flat on its face from the off if I'd missed that it would you know it was, it was such a good story to to tell but I think in terms of of of, sh of sh sort of sheer satisfying thrill botanizing out on North Uist in the in the Hebrides was special in the sense that it's an amazing habitat the maca shell sand um flower um meadows which 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 proliferate along the coastline are beautiful and that was wonderful and i was there to see hebridean marsh orchid which um at the time was still being considered a species but that wasn't the the, the big moment the big moment was was going back to the to to, the, to heading back to the car thinking right i've got to leave to to catch my plane off the island and stumbling across a hybrid orchid, something which I wasn't expecting to see, you know, it was just out of the ordinary. And that was the hybrid between northern marsh orchid and frog orchid. And that thrill of, of sort of serendipitous discovery. Oh, my God, it was it was fantastic. I almost missed my plane because I couldn't really tear myself away from it. I found a second plant nearby and I'm, I'm desperate to go back and see them again. Um and so, yeah, I, I guess it's it, it's it's not necessarily the, the the rarest of things which 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 stick in the mind so much as the sort of the whole emotion attached around the the, the seeing them and finding them. And yeah, I, I guess this again it brings us back to the joy of lockdown botanizing that that sense of surprise when something good suddenly is there in front of you. Finally, you've got a new book coming out. What's that about? Oh, um, that's really kind of you to, to give me a chance to talk about that. I'll, it's it's not about flowers, but they do crop up in it. Um, there are orchids, but it's all about hummingbirds. And um, if anyone has read Orchid Summer, they'll be familiar with the, sort of the principle of not just telling stories about plants or, or looking for plants, but also the places in which they're found and people involved with the plants and the places alike. Well, I've done the same thing with with hummingbirds and they're found right through the Americas from Alaska in the north to Tierra del Fuego down in the south. And over the years, I've traveled um, throughout their range to see them, to see the, 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 the birds, um, the places in which they're found and the people um, involved with them and to tell their stories. So it's, it's like an orchid summer, but for hummingbirds. So it's, 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 it's wonderful, I hope. Thanks so much, John. And do get your hands on a copy of his book, Orchid Summer, to read about his adventures. Now, finally, we've got another one of those wildflower walks from Leifber, Sweden. Hello, hello. Something a little bit different today. Back at the start of these episodes, I told you that I had some exciting trips lined up uh, for work for the rest of this year. And now that travel restrictions have lifted in England a little bit, I'm able to get out and get exploring a bit more. So this week, I'm coming to you from the Yorkshire Dales in the north of England. Now it's a bit breezy up here, I hope you can actually hear this. <laughs> but it is the most beautiful day. The sky is blue, the sun's out, there are a few clouds around, and the air is really fresh. It's one of those really lovely early spring days. Now I'm walking along a stony track that's heading up the side of Pennygent, one of Yorkshire's three peaks. To the north I can see Wernside and to the west 
there's the distinctive hulk of Ingleborough. There are these enormous great big holes, well for Yorkshire anyway. And they have these bands of limestone going through them and tumbling scree slopes. Hi. <laughs> now there isn't much flowering here uh, except this lovely little grass called blue moor grass which I've seen a lot like later in the summer oh some barren strawberry um hi yes uh blue, <laughs> blue moor grass is something I've seen later in the summer when it looks kind of straw-like and I've always wondered why it's called blue moor grass. But now, seeing it in April for the first time, I totally get it. Because the flower heads are these amazing sort of iridescent blue-purple colour. And they're all wobbling around in the breeze. Uh, it's really quite beautiful. But other than that, and the barren strawberry, <laughs> there isn't much in flower. But today I am on the hunt for a very special plant called purple saxifrage. Now this species is a really, really, really cool one that holds various records among flowering plants. So it grows at the highest latitude up in the high Arctic of Greenland and in Svalbard and places where it's uh, really quite common. And it's the highest elevation flowering plant in Europe, growing at the dizzying height of four and a half uh, thousand meters four and a half kilometers at the top of the swiss alps and get this it's able to survive up there at the bone chilling temperature of minus 21 degrees celsius minus 21 it's completely insane now there's research on these ridiculously high altitude plants uh, which studies one growing season, which is about 66 days. And the average temperature in the ground, not at the surface, I presume it's colder at the surface, uh, was 2.6 degrees over those 66 days. So this plant can survive without water, because it's all frozen, at silly low temperatures, and often with extended periods of time uh, where there's very little or no sunlight. So then when the time's right, it just sort of pops out of the ground, pops out its purple flowers and gets pollinated. It's completely mental. I have so much respect for this plant. Anyway, purple saxifrage also grows here in Bristol Island, in the mountainous regions of the north, in the west, uh, particularly in Scotland, unsurprisingly. And it's usually the first thing to start flowering up in the fells. It's an incredibly keen flower, starting in March, sometimes even earlier in February, I think. Uh, today it's the 2nd of April, so I'm kind of hoping I've hit peak season, or at least there'll still be plenty out in flower. And <laughs> I'm already getting exhausted, but I'm nowhere near the top. So I'm gonna keep walking. <laughs> So you don't have to listen to me panting all the way to the top and I will rejoin you once I'm up there. So hang tight. 
Oh my goodness, it is cold up here. <laughs> okay, this is going to be short because my fingers are freezing cold already. Uh, but I've just reached the top of Penny Ghent. Well, not quite the top. Uh, the, the limestone band which stretches across just below the summit. And it's really windy and it's really chilly. Probably not minus 21 degrees, but it kind of feels like it. <laughs> um, and I've just found the most amazing little patch of purple saxifrage growing out of the rock. It's completely amazing. I'm such a big fan of this plant. It's really low growing, kind of hunkers down on the rock and has these brilliant hot pink, sort of, yeah, pinky purple uh, trumpet flowers that have five tongue-shaped petals. And then in the middle, they have these bunch, this bunch of anthers, um, which are bright orange, unless they've been pollinated, and then they seem to be turning blue. There is so much color going on, all just popping out of the rock. So cool. Each flower is also enormous relative uh, to the rest size of the rest of the plant. They look way too big. The flower is kind of as big as the rest of the plant put together. It looks quite funny. Like they've got massive heads. Now, in my reading about purple saxophrage, I learned that the Inuit use the flowers to remedy gastric problems. Um, and they also add them to their food, and apparently they taste quite sweet. I'm not going to try any because it's a much rarer plant here, but I thought that was quite a cool fact. <laughs> Some of the ways in which they've adapted to the adverse conditions they face are pretty obvious immediately, actually. And um, they're really, really low growing. They form these really dense, dense patches sort of cushions of foliage that hug hug the rock and so they're in all of this breeze they're barely moving at all they're clearly really well adapted to just being able to resist uh, the the high winds and one really cool thing i read about is that it forms these rosettes that trap warm air um, there's some research uh, on it in greenland i think that shows that the temperature inside uh, a clump of purple saxifrage was a toasty three and a half degrees, which might sound pretty cold, <laughs> but the air temperature outside was minus 12 degrees. So they're clearly really, really good at just trapping that heat and sort of storing that heat inside their, inside their um, clumps of foliage to keep them a bit warmer than, than the air temperature. Oh, it's so cold. I doff my cap to you, purple saxifrage. I have enormous respect for you growing up here. Truly a keen bean. But I can't deal with it anymore. Uh, I'm getting really cold, so I'm going to get back down. <laughs> I've no idea where I'll be in a couple of weeks' time for the next podcast, but hopefully somewhere a little warmer. Thanks, Leif. And that's all for this episode. We'll be back very soon with another. But in the meantime, do enjoy Wildflower Hour every Sunday between 8 and 9 p.m. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.